Good morning. My name is Naomi O'Connor. Today's scripture reading is Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said, what should be done to the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and whose, whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fail, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking to them, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We are uh, back in the book of Esther, and uh, we're looking at Esther 6, as Naomi so wonderfully read for us. And we're looking at, uh, still at Haman, uh, as I mentioned last week, there's sort of a pause in the action here, and the focus is on Haman for two chapters. And the reason is, is, is I think, is because the author is trying to help us understand what's happening inside Haman. And so he gets deep into his heart and is trying to, to help us understand 
Last week we talked about pride, and this week we're going to talk about approval and our, our need for praise. Now, the reason it's important for us in the context of Esther is because Esther is about the Christian's role in the secular culture. That's really what the book is about, is how are we as Christians participate in this larger, godless, secular society that we're part of. And to do that, we need to confront the world. We need to understand what the world is, what the principles of the world are. And they're outside, but they're also inside. And so for us to deal with the principles that are outside, we need to first identify them in our own hearts and deal with them with the gospel in our own hearts. So yes, our culture is a prideful culture, but we are prideful people. And so we need to deal with pride inside before we can deal with it outside in the world. So that's why the author is pausing, I think, on Haman for two chapters and allowing us to deal with our own hearts before we can engage with our culture in a better way, hopefully. So here's my outline. I'm going to try to approach this text in, under four headings, uh, so four movements here. Let's observe first a stunning admission. There's a stunning admission, stunning revelation from Haman. Secondly, let's consider a frustrating reality. Thirdly, let's engage in a theological analysis. We're going to try to get behind that reality. And then lastly, let's propose a breathtaking solution. Stunning admission, frustrating reality, theological analysis, and breathtaking solution. And that is going to probably take two hours to get through it, so I, I won't. I'm sorry, I won't. I'll just be normal sermon, okay? So let's look at the stunning admission that, that Haman lets out here. He comes to the palace early in the morning. The reason he's, a, he's the only one there at such an early hour because he's waiting to talk to the king about hanging Haman or hanging Mordecai. So he is all prepared. The gallows has been built. He's there first thing in the morning trying to get the king in the morning to approve his plan to hang Mordecai. That's why he's there so early. He doesn't know, though, that the king was not sleeping well. The king is reading through the royal chronicles, which is a record of all that has happened in the court. And he is, he's can't sleep, so he opens it up, he's reading. He finds this record of Mordecai, who had saved the king by exposing an assassination plot probably about five years earlier. It's been a long time. And so he finds this record, and, and he says, well, who's in the court? And the only nobleman in the court is Haman. Now, you look at this story and you say, how can all these things happen like that? He can't sleep. He finds the right paragraph in the records. Haman is there. You know, he suggests, I mean, how can that happen? On the day when Mordecai was supposed to be hanged, you know, all those things. How, how does that happen? Well, God, God is orchestrating all these events. And for those of us who are feeling this tension of being a Christian in the secular culture, this is very encouraging because God is at work. He's working behind the scenes. You're going to go to the polls on Tuesday and Please remember, God is behind the scenes working. There are providential things that are happening even as we speak. And this passage, I think for the first time in the book of Esther, we are starting to feel confident that God's people are actually going to survive. I think this is the first time. In fact, the family and friends of Haman feel that. At the end of the chapter, they're saying, man... I think you picked the wrong fight. <laughs> this is not going to work out well for you. So they're already separating from him. 
He doesn't see it yet, but we see it. The reader sees it. All the pieces are positioned on the board, and yet we're, we're a couple pieces down, but the position is such that checkmate is inevitable, and we can see it right in this passage, even before Esther uh, petitions the king. So the king calls on Haman, who's the only one there, and he asks him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Of course, he's thinking about Mordecai, but Haman, blinded by pride, he can't imagine that the king would be asking about anybody else. Of course, he means me, he thinks. Of course, he's asking me what I would like to, to have from the king as a sign of his favor. And so, he says, this is what I would like. Now, this is really important because this is a very, uh, it's a moment of honesty for Haman. The king, or he thinks, the king is offering him anything he wants, he thinks. And so he tells the king what he actually wants. I don't think there's any politics. I don't think he's playing any games. The king asks him the question. He misunderstands the question, but he answers it. And his answer is, is stunningly honest. This is what Haman says. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn. So this is game-worn jersey is what he wants. And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Notice that Haman is not asking for money. He's not asking for more power or a particular gift or a title or office. He's not asking for any of that. He actually tells the king what he really, really wants. In this moment, when he feels that he can get what he is really after, what does he ask for? He wants to be publicly praised by the king. He wants to be publicly praised by the king. Haman wants what all of us want is to be praised by another. In this moment of vulnerability, in this moment of honesty, he actually tells the king what he really wants. He wants the king to accept him. He wants the king to validate him. He wants the king to praise him. He wants the king to approve of him, and he wants it to be public. Now, he wants it to be personal, Remember, he wants the clothes that the king has worn. He wants the horse that the king has ridden on. So he wants that intimacy. He wants that relational approval. It's the king's stuff. He wants to be as close to the king as he can possibly get. But he wants it to be public. He wants one of the officials to, to parade him around the city and to declare to everybody so everybody would know that this is the man whom the king delights to honor. And let's not forget that it's the king he's talking to. So this is the most important person. This is the highest office. This is the, the most respected person, the most feared person. He wants that person to publicly and personally praise him. Haman wants the praise of the praiseworthy. And this is the most praiseworthy person 
in the land. Now, this is where I'm going to make an analogy and I'm going to make a connection, okay? I believe this is our deepest desire. More than money, more than power, more than pleasure. I think what we really want, and we're willing to sacrifice all those things for that, we want to be praised by another person. And we want that person to be praiseworthy. If you are fans of The Office... I'm going to give you a quote that some of you will recognize and some of you won't know anything that I'm talking about, so I'm sorry about that, but Michael Scott is the main character in The Office, and he, he's a very funny character, but if you pay attention, he, there's, there's so much connection to our experience in his life that it's, it's painful to watch sometimes. This is what he says when asked, do you need to be liked? He says, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. (laughs) Now, what he's saying is actually, he's trying to talk himself out of this need as he's talking and lands right on it at the end of his short speech. Because we can't get away from this deep need to be praised and to be liked and to be accepted and validated by another. Do we not crave that? Do you not crave that recognition? Do you not want the approval of someone who is important in your eyes? Do you not want it to be personal and yet public, intimate and yet on display for everybody else to see? Isn't that why one of the most common things you see on social media is a selfie with a celebrity. You want to stand as close as you can to them, take a picture, and what you really, if you really want to do it right, this is what you do. You call them by their first name in the comments, and you include an inside joke that only you and that person understands. But you do it in such a way that it's clear to everybody who reads your post that it's an inside joke only you and that person understands. You want it to be intimate. You want it to be personal. But you want it to be seen by everyone. Now, we all have different people that we are approaching for approval and praise, of course. It's not all the same person for us. But everybody has that person or several people whose approval and praise matter to you more than anything else in your life. For Haman, it's the king. Who's your king? Who's the person in your life that you need, desperately need their approval and their praise? Who is that? I'm going to pause a little bit because I really want you to think about that. Who is that person in your life for whom you're willing to sacrifice? You're willing to give up things? You want them to delight to honor you. And if they do that, then it makes you feel great. And if they don't do it, it completely destroys you. Who is that person? Who's your king? Think about it. Could be your spouse. Could be your children. Could be your grandchildren. Yes, it could be your grandchildren. I know I'm pushing on the sacred ground here, but it could be your grandchildren. It could be your boss. It certainly could be your parents. But everybody has people in their lives that are kings for them. 
And we're fighting for their honor. We're fighting for their praise. And so when they ask us, what should I do to the person whom I delight to honor? We know exactly what we want. We want their praise. We want it to be personal. We want it to be public. Because they are the most most praiseworthy person in our lives. Let me share a story I recently heard in an interview uh, from an actor, actor Ray Liotta. Did you ever think Ray Liotta would help you understand the gospel a little bit better? Some of you were coming to church and you're thinking, I wonder if he's going to bring up Ray Liotta. Well, you were right. Here's a story about Ray Liotta. Uh, You may not know it. He was adopted as a baby, as a small child. And when he describes his life, he says, I wore it on the sleeve. Says, I just I talked a lot about my adoption. That's how he picked up girls. He would talk about being adopted and have girls feeling bad for him and date him. And then when he was in his 40s, when he was having his own first child, his wife insisted that they find out about his biological family and find out if there's any medical history they need to know. So they did some research, and he went to visit for the first time as a 44-year-old man. He's coming to visit his biological family. He says he got there early. It's a house with a gravel road coming up to it in New Jersey. And he's waiting for the time that he's supposed to come into the house. And a car pulls up, just screeching gravel, spitting gravel everywhere. And on the, on the top of the car is a dead deer tied down. And he's thinking, that's my family. <laughs> and then he went into the house and it got worse. And he realized that there's this dysfunctional family that he is biologically connected to. It's a bit of a disappointment for him. He went with a friend, and after this long conversation with his mom and his stepsisters and brother and full sister, he, they went into a gas station. He said it was raining. It was this just this tremendous rain that he said if it was in the movies, it would, it would uh, identify cleansing. It would, it would be symbolic cleansing of the character. That's how bad it was raining. So as it's raining, his friend turns to him and says, so what do you think? And Ray Liotta says, I'm so glad I got adopted. <laughs> now, what happened here? One, we see that that lack of praise from his parents dominated his life. He didn't even know his parents, but it affected him deeply. He said he felt like he was given up, which of course he was. And his whole life, he's dealing with this deep insecurity that his parents refused to raise him, refused to have him, refused to love him. Messed him up, right? And then the second thing happened. He gets to meet his family, and he's realizing they're not as praiseworthy as he hoped. And so you have the double disappointment of praise withheld and then being disappointed in the person who's not as praiseworthy, and so their praise doesn't matter as much as you hoped it would. Now, that's one person's experience. But all of us, all of us are dealing with the frustrating reality that doesn't match, that what we need is not matched by what we get. The praise that we want, the praise that we're after, that we are craving, when given to, when given to us, it doesn't seem to match. It doesn't seem to fit. Many of us, in fact, are driven by rejection. Many of us are making decisions in life 
either to earn the approval of whoever our king is or trying to avoid the rejection we fear or even reacting to, re- to the rejection we had received at some point in our lives. There are many people who are now making decisions based on what happened 20 years ago because that praise withheld was so important because that rejection that was given to them is, is so affecting. Now, Am I the only person that identifies with that? Anybody else is dealing with rejection, insecurity, hoping to get praise and approval from someone but not getting it? John and I, we're we're the two two here. This is universally human experience. We're all dealing with that. When you go to a therapist, one of the first questions they're going to ask you is about your upbringing and about your parents. Because so many issues stem from unhealthy relationships with your parents. What is that about? Approval and praise, of course. Those of us who have received approval and praise as children are generally much more functional than those who didn't. That's your first experience. You think you should get it and you don't. Or you get it and then you realize that your parents are not really all that. And all of a sudden that praise doesn't seem as important anymore. Doesn't seem to rank as highly as it used to be when you were a child. Let me give an example from an NFL quarterback. I'm trying to use many examples today to try to, to connect with hopefully many people. Aaron Rodgers gave an interview a few years ago in which he told a, just a fascinating story from his college days. It, to me, when I read it, it felt as honest as Haman's revelation in our text. Rodgers talked about an experience he had with a college professor who gave him a poor grade. So he went to see her and and try to resubmit his paper. And this is how he remembers that conversation. This is years later. Remembers it very clearly. He says, she basically ripped me apart and said that athletes always want stuff given to them, that I wasn't going to be able to rewrite my paper, and on and on and on. She went into this tirade about athletes and entitlements and whatnot. She basically picked on the wrong person in the class because I was probably the best student out of the 11 football players in there. I was second team all academic at Cal, if you do your research there. To get to the best part of the story, she's looking at me, condescending, talking down to me, and she says, what do you want to do with yourself? I said, I want to play in the NFL. She laughed. She laughed at me. It was a condescending laugh, and she said, you'll never make it. You'll get hurt, you'll need your education, and you're not going to make it through school here. I said, okay, I don't agree with any of that. I just want to tell you this to you today. Thank you for adding to the chip on my shoulder, and I hope that you're a fan. He gave this interview after he won the Super Bowl, after literally millions of people praised him. But that one teacher from 20 years ago, that one teacher who didn't believe in him, that one teacher that withheld praise, that rejection he experienced motivated him to win the Super Bowl. How messed up are we? That's bad, right? You can have millions of people praising you, and it doesn't mean as much as that one person that rejected you a long time ago. Now, I'm giving you examples. These are examples from, you know, public life, from celebrities, right? But we all have stories like that. We're all reacting to a rejection that happened to us at some point. 
We're all after someone's praise, and it seems elusive, and it seems, even when it comes, it's not quite what it should be. We all long for the acceptance of another, the praise of the praiseworthy, and yet we all have discovered that what we crave is not really attainable, not really in human relationships. Either someone is supposed to praise us, but they don't, or those who praise us turn out to be not as praiseworthy as we thought, like in Ray Liotta's story. The degree of this frustration varies, of course. We're not, we don't all have the same experiences. Some of us have been rejected, and it messed us up more than others. Some of us had a pretty happy childhood, and we're not as susceptible to this. That's the degree of this, but the experience is universal. The frustrating reality is there for everybody. Now look at what happened to Haman. Look at the frustrating reality that, that he experienced. Now I have to admit, you read the book of Esther, and pretty much I'm on Esther's side throughout the story. I'm just going to put my cards on the table, okay? I'm pretty much in Esther's corner. I'm, I'm rooting for God's people to survive. I'm rooting for Mordecai. And yet, at this point in the story, I, I kind of start feeling bad for Haman. I don't know if you feel that, but it's, it must have been crushing to him. It must have been devastating to him. In that moment of vulnerability, when he says, you know what I really want in life more than anything else? I'd love for the king to honor me, for the king to praise me. That's all I want. And the king says, this is a great idea. Let's bring Mordecai. We're going to do all of that for him, and you're going to be the noble person who parades him around and shouts for all to hear in the city that Mordecai is the man that the king delights to honor. Just imagine. Imagine Haman getting the robes, putting it on Mordecai. Get in the horse, put in the crown on the horse, which I don't understand what the deal is with the crown and the horse, by the way. No commentator really understands that. So he does that. He helps Mordecai to get on the horse. Then he leads him out. And then he has to be the person to tell everybody, this is the man whom the king delights to honor, not me. Don't you think he's thinking that? This is the person whom the king praises, not me. This is the person whom the king loves, not me. I can't imagine the pain that he must have felt. And we see it in the text. Right after the whole thing is done, he did what the king commanded him to do. He hurried home, mourning, and with his head covered. Shame. Just deep, deep shame. Deep, deep embarrassment. Deep, deep humiliation. Have you experienced anything like that? In your life, when you've, you've gone for something, you feel like this is your chance to finally ask for the respect or the praise or, or the love that, that you need, and you know in your heart you need it to live, and you ask for it, and you open your heart, and somebody just completely disregards it. Or they say, this is a great idea, let's do all that you're asking for to this person. I know we can go to some dark places when we, when we think about those kind of things. I can't imagine the pain that Haman is, is feeling. At the moment when he was supposed to be praised by the praiseworthy, they gave that praise to someone else. Well, what do we do with all this? I hopefully I've convinced you this is a painful experience. We want that praise and we can't quite get it. 
Our lives are full of disappointments. What do we do with that? Some people say, you shouldn't really care about what other people think of you. The solution is just to stop caring. Stop listening to other people. There are plenty of people today who are saying that. They're actually telling you, be self-sufficient. Don't worry about other people. You define yourself. You hold, hold to your destiny. You do what you want to do. It doesn't matter what other people think. Just disregard them and do. You form your own opinion of yourself. I think that's the wrong approach. Because I actually think that this deep desire for praise and for validation and for acceptance and for love is part of being human. And for us to reject that is to become less human. In fact, I think we kind of know it. People who have become self-sufficient, people who care not at all what other people think, become less human. They become less interesting. They certainly become not the kind of people you want to hang out with. Because they've built a wall and they've protected themselves. Are they hurting? I don't know. I would still think they're hurting. But they've certainly pretended that they're not. I came, up, came across this really strange story. You thought that Ray Liotta was strange or Aaron Rodgers was strange that I brought him up. This is the strangest of my stories today. There's a story about a woman uh, who was estranged from her family. The family didn't disagree with her life choices, which mostly had to do with uh, just what she did with her body. She did all sorts of piercings and tattoos, and I'm not talking about the normal stuff you see, some really weird body uh, mutilation. And so she was pretty upset with her family. So she decided to kind of pay them back and to express just her her anger towards them is to completely cut any ties with them, and the way she expressed it is by surgically removing her belly button. Because she said, this is what makes me human, this is what connects me to other people, and so if I remove that, I'm going to be my own person, and I don't need to care about what they think. It's a real story. By the way, she regrets it now, I have to tell you. The actual story is she regrets doing that now, but now, this is an extreme, weird story, right? But it's the same logic. It's the same reasoning. For me to survive, because I need the praise of another, I'm just going to reject it altogether. I'm going to reject that need. I'm going to bury it deep. I'm going to build some walls. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to not care about anybody else. And what I'm saying today is that this is an essentially human need that has to be filled for us to live, has to be filled for us to be human. And it comes from the very design of God. So here's my theological analysis very quickly. Genesis 1.31. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I'll read it. Genesis 1.31. This is when God created everything, and then he created people. And after he created people, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, as you might remember... God, after every stage of creation, said that it was good. He saw that it was good, and he said it. But when he made people, he said, it is very good. And do you know what's happening here? He's praising us. That's what he's doing. He's delighting to honor us. He's looking at his creation, and he's saying, this is great. 
And it is intimate and it is personal because we are reflecting his image. He sees himself in us. There's a connection between us and God. And it is public because he's saying it for all creation to hear. And it is coming from the person who is the most praiseworthy person imaginable. Brothers and sisters, this is how you were made. This is your origin story. This is how God made you. He made you to be praised. He made you so he could praise you. So he could love you. So he could accept you. This is who we are. For us to say, I don't need the praise of another, is to say, I don't want to be human. But for us to embrace that need, we have to find how to, how to fill it. And that's where we are. We want to be human, but we can't. Because in Genesis 3, something happened. Genesis 1 is the design, right? God makes us to praise us. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve say, we don't want your praise. We don't want your love. We don't want your acceptance. In fact, what they're really saying is, we are more praiseworthy than you are. So we're going to praise ourselves, and that's going to be more meaningful to us than your praise. That's Genesis 3. And since then, we're chasing that praise and acceptance. And naturally, we go to other people, of course. We've severed ourselves from God. Who else are we going to go to? We go to other people. We go to our spouses. We go to our children. We go to our grandchildren. We go to our parents, and we tell them, love us, praise us, validate us, accept us as God loves us, as God accepts us, as God validates us. That's what we're doing in every relationship. We want that. Our need for approval has not gone away. But we no longer have the praise of the ultimate praiseworthy person. So we keep seeking it. And we keep being disappointed. But to expect to get what only God can give us from a human person inevitably leads to experiences of rejection, shame, frustration, and humiliation. Now, we actually see it right away happening between Adam and Eve. Their relationships are broken right away. They cannot relate to each other because what they're expecting each other to do is only what God can do. So immediately, that frustration sets in into the human experience. Ernest Becker said, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. Which means as if I'm looking at another person and I'm saying, you got to praise me the way God can praise me, I'm setting them up for failure and myself for disappointment. How can they do that? How can they do that? They're not God. They can love me as a person can love me, but they can't love me as God loves me. And that's our problem. That's why we're all struggling. That's why we're all responding to rejection. That's why we're all motivated to prove that we belong somewhere, that somebody has to love us. That's why. Haman had the right idea. He needed to pursue that desire for praise and love and validation. He just had the wrong king. He went to the wrong king. So let's go to the right king. This is the breathtaking solution that we are offered to this very, very significant issue in our lives, and it's offered to us in Jesus. Jesus Christ came to restore the approval and praise we crave to get from God. Go with me to Mark 1, verse 9. This is a fascinating passage to tell us what Jesus came to do for us. Mark 1, 
verse 9. Remember, this is Jesus' first public appearance. In the Gospel of Mark, this is when Jesus shows up. So it tells us what he's about to do. It tells us what his mission is. It tells us what he came to restore. Let me read it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In light of what Haman was after, what is happening here? Jesus is receiving the Father's approval and praise. And it is intimate. You are my son. You're my beloved son. I'm well pleased in you. It's relational. And it is public. It's out in the open. And by the way, there is a witness. The Holy Spirit is there to witness the Father's love for the Son. Jesus comes and he says, this is what I came to bring. This is what I came to restore. I came to restore this level of praise and love and affection from God to these sinful people. Jesus, the new Adam, came to reverse what the old Adam did. He's saying the the old Adam lost that praise. He lost that relationship with God full of praise and love. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to bring it back. Jesus In John 15 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. What is he saying? He's saying the love of the Trinity that I have, the approval and the praise of the Trinity that I have, I'm extending it to you. I'm sharing it with you. I came to restore it back into your lives. John 17, he prays, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What does that mean? The glory that the Father and the Son share, as witnessed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm going to give it to you. I've come to give this Trinitarian glory, this security, this love, this affection, this praise. I've come to give it to you. In Ephesians 1, what we have in Christ, which is all of this, is described in breathtaking detail. Ephesians 1 is is a key passage to understand the praise and love of God that we have in Christ. And this is what it tells us. It tells us that we are blessed in him. With every spiritual blessing, we are blessed in him, in Christ. That all these blessings of God come to us through Christ. It's available to us. We are chosen in him. God chose us. He looked at us and said, I'm going to love him. I'm going to love her in Christ. We are loved and predestined for adoption through him, through Christ. We've been adopted out of a dysfunctional family into a healthy family by God. We've been redeemed and forgiven through his blood. Jesus shed his blood so we could could be accepted again, so that what Adam did could be undone. According to God's purpose set forth in him, in Christ, everything is focused on him. Having obtained an inheritance in him. And then it says this, this curious phrase, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is an eternal witness to God's love for his people in Christ. So that God's love for his people in Christ will always be not only intimate and personal, but public. The Holy Spirit will always confirm and will always testify and will always always witness that we are loved by God in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1, we are blessed in the beloved. 
What a, what a great way to put it. We're blessed in the beloved. As Christ is loved, now this love is made available to us. If we are in him, all that Christ has with the Father, as witnessed by the Holy Spirit, is given to us. Friends, that's what you're after. That's what you're craving. That's what I'm craving. I want that level of affection. I want that level of approval. I want that level of praise. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying this Mark 1-9 reality, this baptism where the Father says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit witnessing that, that love, Jesus says, I'm going to give it to you. And so he comes, and he takes off his robes, and he gets down from his horse, and he says, you get on my horse, you put on my clothes, and I will parade you around the city. And I will tell everybody that this is the person in whom God delights to honor. What an amazing thing. Jesus says, I'm going to find these people, these insecure people who are, can't deal with rejection, who are always chasing this approval, who have set up other kings in their lives. I'm going to find them one by one, and I'm going to parade them one by one in my city, and God would shower his grace on them. We are the people that God delights to honor because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. Not because of me, not because of you, but because you find yourself in Christ by faith. Luther calls it a joyous exchange. Somehow, by faith, I get incorporated into Christ, and so all that he has is now mine, and all that I have is now his. So all the shame and humiliation and devastating rejection that I have experienced, he's got it. And he went through that on the cross, including God's rejection. And whatever he has, all the praise and affection and approval of the Father, I now have by faith because I'm in him. And that is why Scripture in several places tells us, put on Christ. Put on Christ. As if we can put on his clothing, right? as if we can put on his righteousness, which of course we can by faith. That is exactly how it works. By faith we come to him and we put on who he is so we could be loved by God, praised by him, approved by him, as Jesus himself is approved and loved by the Father, witnessed by the Spirit. I'll finish with quoting the song we're going to sing so we can start thinking about these words. Father, how sweet must be the pleasure you find in your eternal Son. For long before you made the heavens, both you and he rejoiced as one. And long before you formed the angels, before you made the day and night, Jesus exalted in your presence, and he was all of your delight. That's the love and affection and praise of the Trinity. Jesus, it fills our hearts with wonder that you would leave your heavenly place to take on flesh, to thirst and hunger, to save the ones who spurned your grace. You came to forfeit every mercy, to die that mercy we would find. And then you hung alone in darkness, so in our hearts your grace would shine. Let's come to the table and experience that. Let's ask God to pour out his love by the Holy Spirit into our hearts so we would feel it. So we would know it, so we wouldn't crave it in other people, but simply have healthy relationships and love them. But so we would appropriate 
all the affection and praise and love that the Father has for us in Christ.